you know, this is it, right? I mean, this is the best day of the entire year. I mean, this is, this is better than our birthdays. I mean, I know somebody actually that is having a birthday today, and I hope to be able to recognize her because I hope I remember right. But, but even she, I think, would agree that this is better than her birthday. I mean, why we're here. We are here to recognize the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's just nothing better. There's not a better day. It's better than our anniversaries, you know. It's, it's, it's better than the 4th of July. It's, it's better than uh, the first day of a long-awaited vacation, right? Your, your very first day of vacation. It's better than. It's, what else is there better than? There's nothing better than this day. I mean, I, I'm excited. I, I can't help but when Easter comes, I mean, I get excited just because I can't even tell you how long. It's been a long time since I got to see a full house in this building, and I'm excited about that. But, but why we're here is even better than that. I mean, this is just awesome. Uh, we got to do sunrise service. We haven't got to do that for a few years, and, and that was awesome. This, this whole day is just, and we get to do Easter eggs, and we got all these little kids, and that's exciting. Um, but this whole day is just exciting to me because of what Jesus has done for us. You know, I, I, have, I had a conversation with a really dear friend this past week. She, she writes blogs uh, for the internet, and she wrote her, her Easter blog, and she sent it to me, and she says, hey, if you got a moment, uh, read this and give me your first impression. So I knew what that meant. You know, you read it once, and then you, you just tell them what you think. And so I read it, and... Uh, uh, She's probably going to learn. She probably won't do this, you know, ask me what my first impressions are again. Because I'm pretty slow with first impressions. You know, when what, what is intended to be seen, I eventually see. You know, it's like jokes. I'm the guy that doesn't laugh because I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I get that now. You know, I mean, I'm slow when it comes to this stuff. Uh, you can just ask Lori. In fact, uh, you know, Lori comes home and, and if she, she says, what do you think? Now, I'm not stupid. I'm slow, but I'm not stupid, right? And so when she says, what do you think? I mean, my eyes are just darting everywhere, trying to think, what do I think? I think about what? I know this is like a test, you know, like I, I should know what the answer to this is. And, and so my eyes are going everywhere. My brain is scanning, which doesn't take long, but uh, trying to figure out what is it that I'm missing. I should, I should see the obvious, and I don't see the obvious all the time. And uh, so eventually, you know, I, I just don't know what else to do. I, I know I'm just going to have to ask. I know it's not the right thing, but like, what do I think about what? And she's like, well, my new hairstyle, you know. And, of course, you know, you try to recover. Maybe some of you guys are like this. I don't know. But you're just like, well, obviously I thought it was the best one you've had yet, you know. <laughs> and then she'll say, you, you didn't even notice, did you? And I have to say what? I mean, I have to be honest. I have to say no. Now, she used to maybe get a little upset. She used to roll her eyes. She doesn't do any of that anymore because she knows that I'm just a little slow. You know, I'm, I'm the one that gets there. I get there eventually. But anyway, back to the blog. So my first impression, well, she ends her, it's, it's about Easter, and it says, Easter, I choose to believe. And I don't know why, but I just got hung up on the I choose to believe. And, and so I started texting back about that. And, and 
obviously I had it all wrong. What she was saying, and I realized that after, you know, after I read it the second time, it was easy and it was obvious to me, but what she was saying is, is I, I choose to celebrate Easter, you know, duh. But I got hung up on I choose to believe, and I, I was just like, I don't know. I, I don't like that phrase, I choose to believe, because it makes it seem like belief or faith is a little weak, you know, like, like I, have to, I have to choose, I have to force myself to believe, even though all the evidence is just leading away from, I mean, the most logical thing would be like to not believe, but, but I'm going to choose to believe regardless of, you know, the overwhelming evidence to not believe. And that's the, what I was thinking, you know. And there, I know the reason I was saying that is because I took presuppositions to it because of what I'm preaching on today, what I've been going through, you know, for sunrise service and Good Friday and last Palm Sunday. And, and so that's where my mind was sinking. And so I was just like, I don't like that phrase, you know. I choose to believe. I, I think it's like the opposite. I think instead of I choose to believe like I have to force myself to believe. I think it's, I would, if you're going to choose something, you don't have to choose to not believe because all the evidence is pushing us to, to believe, right? It's overwhelming evidence that God has given us everywhere we look in creation and, and everything that we've been talking about up to the resurrection and everything that God has given us. It's like overwhelming evidence that obviously we're going to believe. We've been believing ever since we were kids. If God is not in our life, it's because we have chose to push him out of our lives. We don't, we don't choose to believe. Rather, we'd have to choose to not believe because God is just so amazing in that way uh, because the evidence is far more weighted for the believer than it is for the skeptic, right? It's just, it's just obvious. It makes more sense to believe then it makes sense to not believe. Um, and so everything is pushing to believe. So much so, you have to decide to reject, not decide to believe. And so that's what I was trying to say. And of course, you know, obviously, uh, I, I wasn't, she was probably just like so confused. Why did I ask this guy? <laughs> because he, he doesn't even have a clue what I just wrote, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I can't help but want to start with that because I, that's really at the heart of where we've been, where we've come. You know, we have been on a little journey. We'll talk about that in a second. But I want us to start there. I want us to start with just understanding that it's obvious that God exists. It's obvious that Jesus walked this earth. It's obvious that he resurrected from the dead. It, it's it's obvious that he's around everything. You cannot go into creation. Everything is just turning beautiful, by the way, right? Out there, and the weather is changing, and the birds are having their babies, and, and everything is pointing to that there is a God. Everything. It, it makes, it, it, it blows my mind that there's people that don't believe more than it blows my mind that there's people that believe. Uh, because God is in everything. You know, and Scripture is this really points this out. You know, like Ecclesiastes 3.10, I mean 3.11, it says, and this was, by the way, Ecclesiastes, he wrote it. You know, Solomon, who is known as probably the, the wisest other than Jesus, of course, the wisest man that ever lived because God gave him, you know, wisdom. That's what he asked for, and God gave it to him. 
But this is what he says in his writings. I mean, obviously it stands for itself if you ever read them. You know, Song of Solomon and Proverbs and, and Ecclesiastes. I mean, you can't read it and not think, man, this guy was crazy genius. I mean, so wise. But this is what he said. He says, he has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, what God, yet so we can't ever, we can't ever put God in a box. We'll never be able to understand everything about God. But you know what God has done? He has put eternity in the hearts of man. In other words, you cannot live life and not know that there is a God. It's impossible. Now, you can live life and reject him all your life if you want to. But, but you know, we know that there is a God. In, in Romans chapter 1, it talks about this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. I mean, it's, the writer is just trying to help us understand what I'm trying to say here. It's, just that it's, it's, it's known. Everybody is without excuse to, to think that there is not a God because God has made himself known in everything. And it does go on to say, for although they knew God, what does it say? They did not honor him as God or gave thanks to him. And be my guess that you understand that because you probably were that at one time, right? You knew that there was a God, but you also knew that I don't want to follow God right now. I kind of want to follow my own ways. I want to do my own thing. And so you knew that you were pushing him out of your life, but you never really got to a place where you just didn't believe that there was a God. We all believe. You know, that, that old saying that there's no atheist in a, in, in a foxhole, you know, like when things go south real quick, when you're in a car wreck, the first thing you do is just like pray that everything is okay. Who are you praying to? We all pray to the same person. We all know that God exists. Anyway, it just, you know, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. Now we see that a lot in our world, right? They claim to be wise, but we know, we know. This is foolish talk that, that the people that are claiming that there's no God in this world, we know that's just foolishness. So last week, I want us to catch us up on this journey, and some of you are going to be like, oh, we're going to have another uh, recap, but we have been on a journey, and I'm excited uh, that some of you are joining us, maybe for the first time, maybe you've been online, maybe some people online are joining us for the first time, but we've been on a journey, and it's been a really a great journey. For me, it's been a great journey, uh, but Matthew and I, we sat down, and we just kind of planned this out, and we started last week, and on Palm Sunday, we decided that we were just going to talk about prophecy and how prophecy was just part of what I'm talking about. It just gives us evidence that God exists, right? Thousands of years before Jesus ever came, the, the different uh, prophets, different people in, in, in different periods of time, some 
you know, thousands of years, some two thousands of years before. I mean, it's just spread out. People were saying what God told them to say, and they didn't even understand what they were saying necessarily, but they were prophesying about somebody that was going to come. And it talked about, you know, where he was going to be born and, and how he was going to be born and how he was going to die and just all of these prophets. And as we looked last week, it's almost like a, putting together a puzzle. You know, every piece by itself doesn't really completely make sense. You don't know exactly what the prophet's talking about, but as you keep putting these pieces together, all of a sudden you realize you know exactly who's talking about. It's pointing all to Jesus. I mean, like, that's obvious because when Jesus shows up, he fulfills every one of those prophecies, right? I mean, it just blows everybody away. So when the disciples realized that Jesus was doing these miracles and he was healing people. And on top of that, he was fulfilling all these prophecies. They knew that they had the Christ. They knew that you are the one that was being spoken of. And, and so they were all in, right? But then, and, and they, they just felt invincible, really. I mean, they just felt like, and that's what we talked about Friday, these people were felt like, you know, they were walking around with somebody that could take care of every situation that came their way. Nothing could harm them. Nothing could hurt them. And, and, and then Friday came, and they crucified him. And, and I tell you, Friday was, this is what we talked about, it was a hope crusher. Because they had their hopes way high. He was the one. He was going to you know, conquer everything. They left everything for him. They left their nets and they left their, their family. They left everything to follow him. And now he is gone. He was crucified and they witnessed it. Some of them were, were just over flooded with doubt, like, man, maybe he wasn't. Remember the two on the road to Emmaus? We looked at that, and, and that was what they said. We had hope. He, this is, Jesus is walking with them. They don't even recognize him. And, and Jesus says, what are you all sad about? And he's, he's just like, you must be in a box not knowing what we're sad about. Did you not know that they crucified Jesus? And, 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 and they just went on to say, man, we just hoped. That's what the word is there. We hoped he would have been the one. And so their hope was gone, right? And, and some of them were just heartbroken. Some of them were in despair. I mean, there was so much emotional. But here's the thing is, every one of them, some of them were hiding, literally hiding away in, in, in behind closed doors, hoping that they weren't going to be the next one that they hauled to the hill and crucified on, on a cross but all of them, not some of them, not most of them, all of them were complete, their hope was completely destroyed. They were in bad shape. And then, as we talked about today, when we got to do our sunrise service, which was amazing, the sun came up, and, and it was just beautiful outside. But what we got to see is that when Jesus began to show himself, and he was just popping around everywhere. But where did he start? He started with the ladies and several different encounters with ladies. And, and then with the guys and, and then with groups of 500. I mean, he was showing himself everywhere because he wanted to reassure all these people that he loved dearly that he was risen from the dead. He did not want anybody 
to be able to squelch this in his believers. And we know that they conspired. They, they hired the guards to make up, you know, tell them that the disciples come and sold the body away. But there was no stopping this now. There was a spark that started, you know, that morning that, that there was hope that began to, all of a sudden, they didn't think any hope was going to come. Like everything was destroyed, but, but then there was a spark of hope and they were running away. In fact, it says at the beginning that they, they ran away to go tell the disciples and they were filled, filled with fear and joy. Like there's, can you mix those two? And you can. Because it was a fearful thing but it was also a joyful thing to think that Jesus just rose from the grave. And, and they just like, man, can this really be true? By the end, and this is where we are now, but by the end of it all, you have all of these people that just, I mean, in such a short period of time, can you go to more extremes? Talk about bipolar, right? I mean, these guys were all in, completely destroyed all hope, all in, in just a short period of time. And that all in the second time was all in. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning because it, is, it, it should encourage us. As we leave today, I hope you're super encouraged just, just with the radical change that took place in these people that followed Jesus. The radical change, and I, I want to just highlight that word. I mean, radical. We're not talking about just sort of changed. They sort of got back on board. They were completely on board, even more so on board than they ever were before. And you know where it started? Let's just walk through this a little bit. You know where it started? It started with the women. The very first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were the women. Why is that important? Well, the reason that is important is because Women weren't given very much credibility to be an eyewitness back then. I mean, it's just, in some of the, you know, uh, the Middle East areas, it hasn't changed a whole lot. It's changed quite a bit, but it's still, I mean, women still don't have the credibility equal to the guys. If you would travel over there, you would feel some oppression that's never the way that Jesus ever intended. It's never the way that he ever treated any women. But it is the way that it was going on in this society. And if you understood that, then you would know that, that having the women be the first witnesses, what a waste of time that would be. Like if you are wanting to create something, you know, make up something, the last thing that you would do is, is let women be the first to give testimony. Because <laughs> like, back then... They weren't even allowed to, their, their testimony wouldn't even uphold in a courtroom, right? They couldn't, they, they wouldn't be able to give testimony, but if they did, nobody would believe it. You just have to go back and study it, but because but, I know that it's not the way it is now, and it shouldn't be that way, but it is the way that it was. And, I, and all I'm saying is that if this was made up, this is why it gives credibility to our story and the first thing I want to bring up, because if it was a made-up story, that would have been one of the first things that they would have made sure that they didn't falter on, because everybody knows what it was like then. They would have somehow had Nicodemus come to the tomb first, right? Because Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and Nicodemus would have had some credibility. 
Or they would have had, you know, maybe Joseph of Arimathea show up. I mean, he's the one who owned the tomb, right, that he gave over to Jesus. I mean, something other than the ladies. But the thing is, is that you see this is this account, just the fact that the way, it, it's kind of like, how is it, if, if man were to write this story, you know how man would not have done? It would not have taken the king of kings, the lord of lords, and brought him into the world in a very obscure little town and put him in a manger where nobody knew. Would anybody write a story like that? Is that how, uh, you know, that we would have thought that up? No, but that's how God does. I mean, God does not do it the way that we do it, but, but in reality, when it's all said and done, God brought more credibility to his own story by the way that he did it than if he did it the way that we would have concocted some kind of story. And that's definitely the case here. There is credibility in these first hearers only because <laughs> it's, just, it's just amazing how, what God did and how he chose to do it. Here's another thing that I think is really important, and that's just what we kind of already said, but all of them got on board. Why did they all get on board? I mean, talk about a roller coaster of emotions. Just as we were talking about, I mean, some were coming from doubt. They just, you know, they're skeptical. That's just their nature. How many of you are like that? I'm like that. I mean, I just have this skeptical nature. I mean, you know, you tell me something that seems too good to be true. I'm the first one to say that's too good to be true. And, and you're just going to have to prove to me then. It, it, you know, it's, that's just the, the, the nature I have. And some of us are just that way. But there was just that emotional roller coaster. Some people were like that. Some people were from a whole different angle that they were just heartbroken and they were just sickened by the whole thing. Like Mary his mother and all that he had she had to endure to watch their son be mistreated misjudged and and treated like a criminal and all of these things that happened to him and just uh, how heart-wrenching but it wasn't just mary it was mary magdalene it was mary the mary and martha it was uh, shalom and joanna and i don't know all of their stories but i just know that like mary magdalene she was forgiven I mean, seven demons are driven out of her. You think she didn't have an appreciation for this man? That's why she was like at his feet. You know, Mary and Martha, that's why Mary was at his feet. And these women were wiping, you know, his feet with tears and anointing him. And because there was just, they were emotionally attached to this Jesus. And then there was people that were just terrified. You know, Peter acted big and strong, but then all of a sudden he was terrified, you know. But all I'm saying is that so all of these different emotions that are going on, and how is it that everybody having all, all their own emotional things that are going on, all of them instantly come and that gets solved and resolved all at the same time? How is it possible? How is it that they all got on the same page, you know, by just a very short period of time? And when they're all scattered out, it's not like they had a conference call. I don't think Zoom was back then. And yet they were. That's because Jesus was just popping everywhere and making himself known everywhere. And, it is, and nowhere in Scripture does it say, well, you know, most of them 
got on board. Now, we know that in Matthew chapter 28, that when the eleven went up on the hill right before Jesus ascended, it said they worshipped him, but some doubted. But it wasn't a type of doubt that would have just not had them show up. It's just that they couldn't wrap their minds around this. This is, this is so, so amazing. And that would have been me. I don't know about you. Just trying to understand how you conquer death. How does that really happen? But they were there and everybody was on board. The New Testament just describes this remarkable, this enduring transformation of everyone all at the same time. You have the transformation of doubters. You have the transformation of heart-broken people, the transformation of those who fear. It's just everywhere. And here's this, the third thing, and, and I know that this seems so close, but it's, it's, it's like taking it to another level. Their transformation was so radical that it just didn't change them back to what they were. It took them beyond where they were. It, it was a, a radical change that now they are willing to die. You see? Because before Jesus resurrected, they said they were willing. Some of them did. You know, Peter said, I'll die with you, Lord. But when it came down to it, was he wanting to die? No, he was, he was saying all kinds of things until all the roosters crowed, you know. Because uh, he was trying to save his own life. But man, when, when Christ, when he saw the risen Christ, now he, now he is taking it to a whole nother level. Now I'm ready to die. And now you just think about that. Not only did they all get on board, but now they all got on board to a whole nother level of intensity. And that's all I'm trying to say here. And that's like, that's like something you don't want to forget. Because now they were, they were willing to die, and many of them even had to. You know, it's one thing saying, yeah, just waterboard me. But it's another thing when you start waterboarding, you don't change your tune. Because, you know, after the first time they let you come up for breath or something, then that's when you're like... I was just lying. I never did see him. But none of these people ever did. I mean, they they stuck to their story. There was never any remorse. Nowhere ever did it seem like there was any regret. From that moment on, in a short period of time, they changed their perspective from being completely lost and bewildered and, and hopeless to now you do whatever you want because we are living forever. You can't take away what I now know we have. And, and that's just, that's remarkable. What if Adolf Hitler, and I know that this is kind of stupid thinking, but what if Adolf Hitler just like instantly over just a few hours overnight changed and all of a sudden he comes out and he just is a, a Jewish sympathizer and he is for them, not against them. Would not somebody say, like, what in the world happened behind that closed door, right? I mean, what changed that? Or the or, or same thing with Winston Churchill. What if he become a communist overnight? I mean, at least we get people to think and act and, and like, ask questions. Or Donald Trump becoming a communist. Now, we all know that's not going to happen, right? But if it did, you would be wondering... Like, what in the happened? And that's the thing that's going on because the disciples, they had nothing to gain by 
all of a sudden coming out from hiding. Coming out, and how do you fake emotion? You go to the tomb one moment and you're just broken and, and you know it's genuine. The next thing you know, you are running back with joy. How do you fake that? How do you convince people that that's real? You can't, you can't convince people that you're full of joy when you are completely broken. You know, just for a side note, I just want to pause for a minute and read some scriptures to you because one of the things that this does also is it shows and it demonstrates what is expected of us if we choose to be followers of Jesus. You understand, I'm not saying if you choose to believe. I already know you all believe. But if you choose to be a follower of Jesus, what's expected of you? What's expected of me? What's expected of us? You know what? Same radicalness. I mean, it really is. It, it, it doesn't, you know, Jesus wasn't shocked that they were radically changed. In fact, he expected them to be radically changed when he was popping up everywhere. He still expects it from us, right? The risen Jesus, the King of kings, the one who conquered death, still expects those who choose to follow him to still live radically different. That's why, look at it, just some of these verses. This is not a, a full group of verses, but this, these will blow you away, I know, because Galatians five twenty four it says, And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you have to walk away, radically walk away from the flesh the passions and the desires. And guess what? I bet every one of us here know that. Did you know that Matthew chapter 20, or 16, verse 24 says, and then Jesus told him, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In other words, he expects us to have our own little cross, right? And what was the cross about? It was about sacrifice. Jesus laid down his life for his friends, the Bible says. He gave up what was rightly his, his life, for us. And in return, what does he expect us to do? To give up our life for him. That's why he asks us to deny self, take up our cross, and follow him daily. What about this one in Luke 14, verse 26? If anyone come after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Talk about radical. Is that crazy radical? But Jesus, he really meant it. He really believes that he should be like number one on every one of our lists. Like he's not saying that you shouldn't value your mom or your children. He wants you to love them with all you all your heart, but just not love them as much as you love him. Like, he's still got to be number one. That's what he's saying. It's got to be that radical. Your children got to know that you love me more than them. Your wife needs to know that you love me, not me, okay, not me, Jesus, more than them. Your husband needs to know that. That's pretty radical talking, isn't it? But that's just what Jesus expects. With all of his followers, that's what he expected of them. In Romans chapter 1, 
I mean, Romans chapter 12, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, talking about, he, he's talking about God's grace and, and mercies and everything. You know, he's just laying it all out through the first 11 chapters. And Paul says this, he, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, as a conclusion to everything we just talked about, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. John 12, 25, it says, Whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You see, all of this is just to point out that Jesus still demands and expects his followers to be radically changed. And just as we look at their lives, and it, it brings confidence, and it brings stability to our faith, it, it, re, it, it reassures us that we are not believing in vain, Right? That Our radical change today does that for everybody else. Because when the people that are out there saying, well, you can't believe that stuff. They know that there's a God, but let me tell you something. When they see that God's followers, Jesus' followers, are radically different, that's what gives them credibility to believe what they already know to be true. Here's one more, and it leads to my last point, and that is just this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is the Apostle Paul. Now, do you remember where he is in the story of the resurrection? All the way up to the resurrection, what is it that Paul, actually his name was Saul of Tarsus. What was he about? He was like an Adolf Hitler, I'm just saying. He was the one that was going around killing every Christian that he could find. He was the one who was stoning them. He was holding the cloaks of the guys who were picking up the rocks and, and beating them and killing them. And he thought he was justified in doing that because he thought he was doing God's work. He was, he was a, a, a very influential, very top dog in, in the Jewish culture. That's what he was doing. He was the first one leading them up to you know, the steps saying, crucify him, crucify him. I bet he was one of the first there. That's what Saul of Tarsus was. But I want you to see also that his conversion gives credibility to the resurrection. Because after Jesus came back to life and he showed himself to all of these people and he went into to heaven, I guess. But at some point, he comes back and personally has an personally has an encounter with the Saul of our Saul of Tarsus, changes his name to Paul, radically changed. This is what he says, and then we will talk just a little more about this. But he says in Galatians two twenty, he says this. He says, "I have been crucified with Christ." It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we could comprehend what he was doing leading up to the resurrection and then realize the change that he had because of a face-to-face encounter with Jesus, that in and of itself would give so much credibility to the resurrection. What changed that man? 
And, and it wasn't just him. I mean, there was doubters all over. There was Thomas, and we talked about that this morning, just that, that Jesus understands each and every one of us and where we are. And with Thomas, he just could not wrap his mind around it. He didn't get to see the, the Lord. He missed the first encounter, right? And he's just like, I, I know that you guys act like, man, you guys act like you have seen him, but I, there's no way I can give myself to that unless I see him. And what does Jesus do? He shows up. Put your hands here, Thomas. Put your hands here, Thomas, where they put the nails. And then he says, my Lord and my God. Now I am all in. 100%. Did you know he did that for James too? It's not in the Gospels, but we know from 1 Corinthians that, that he showed himself to James. Who's James? Well, it's his brother. And James was, it's not that he didn't know that Jesus was a good man or a good guy. I mean, he, he grew up with him. He was frustrated most of the time that he was like the favorite, right? But when he, Jesus showed himself, he was completely changed. He was one of the first martyrs, James, killed by the sword there in the early stages of Acts. And then there's Paul, radically changed. I, some of you know, I, I've mentioned it before, but you know, I, all my life, I've always just been intrigued by people who, who invest. And I, I don't mean like people who go down to, you know, Edward Jones and give money because uh, I'm just talking about, I don't know how it works. Like, how would you know what stock to pick? And, you know, how do, the, how do people like Warren Buffett take just a few thousand dollars and now they're like $300 billion richer? You know, how do they do that? And and when I get intrigued about something, I just have to start trying to figure out it. And so I, with no money, I just decided that I want to understand. And so I just decided to go on this thing. Well, one of the first things that I learned right off is that there are people like Warren Buffett. I, I knew the name, but I really didn't know anything about him. But we, they call them uh, uh, financial or investor gurus. There's gurus in everything, Right. I mean, in sports, you have certain gurus. What is a guru? It's somebody that knows everything about anything. My uncle's here, and I guarantee he's a guru on, on the pointing labs. He knows everything, but he's a guru on a lot of things, actually, too. But, uh, um, but there's just people that know way more than, than the average person, right? And so there's these financial gurus, these investors. And, and how do you know they're a guru? Because they can take $1,000 and make it into millions in just a short period of time. Now, these gurus, they, if, if they have over $100 million invested in any stock market, uh, they have to report it to the SEC, right? Uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission. And they have to report what they invested in, you know, what stocks and how much and stuff like this. I, I'm sure that they would rather not let everybody in the world know, but that's what, you know, that's just the way that works. It's called the, the 13 Fs. Now, all the rest of us, we're pretty excited that they have to do that, you know? And, and you, there's this term, it's called uh, shameless cloners. And you can already guess what that is. That's just 
what is Warren Buffett putting his money in? I think that's what I'm going to put my money in, you know. Or, or what is Manesh Parai putting his money in? In fact, Manesh Parai is the one that kind of came up with the phrase. Because back when he was started, guess what he was doing? He was looking at all the gurus, what they were doing. And he was still doing all of his study, but it just added credibility to what his already, his convictions were about it. So just, just hang with me for a minute, okay? So let's just say that you have been studying for a while, but you're still a very much an amateur. And you think you understand how to evaluate a stock, right? A company is what it amounts to. Evaluate a company. And so you start looking at this company because, man, this company's so cheap, but it looks like it ought to be higher. And so you start looking into all of its financials, and you like, man, the return on equity is pretty amazing. The revenue, just every year, it's just like, this goes a little higher, you know. I mean, you look at it, their sales, they just, every year it's higher. I mean, the ROI, which uh, C, the ROIC, which is return on invested capital, you know, what? that's just like the money that they have left over, what do they do with it to increase? And you just, that just seems, I mean, everything you look at about this stock, it just seems like this is crazy. How come nobody's buying this stock, Right? But because you're, you're new and you're timid, you're just thinking, man, there's something I'm not seeing, right? That's what you're thinking. And so you're just like, you want to put your money in it, but man, you're just not, you can't just go by your own thoughts on this. But what if there was a place, and there is a place, okay, there's actually several places you can do this, but you could just check up and see what, like, you could just put in this stock, I mean, like Apple, okay? Uh, and you can see if there's any gurus that have invested in this. And let's just say that this particular stock, you, you look at this site, and, and the first thing you know is like, man, there's like 20 of your top favorite gurus have all just bet the farm on this stock. And yet it's low, right? What would you do? I mean, you already think it's a great stock, but now you think, man, everybody, these people who are super, super smart and have proven themselves over and over and over, they're betting farm on this thing. I don't know what you do, but I know what I would do. Every little bit of money I could get my hands on, I would throw it in there. I would do it. And if you didn't, here's what I also know is in some period of time, whether it's a year or two, you're going to be like, man, I wish I would have done that, right? But without the gurus, you just wouldn't have enough, like, support under you. I mean, you might have put some money in there. Maybe you'd put $1,000 in there, even though you have, you know, 50000 you know. But you're just not willing to buy the farm, but man, if all these gurus were seeing the same thing you were seeing, and they were like investing 80% of everything they had, and we we're talking about hundreds of millions and billions of dollars, and they were just put on, would that not help your confidence? Would that not boost you a little bit to be a little more brave, a little more risky, a little more courageous? I know it would me. I guarantee you it would me. You see, when it comes to the resurrection, all of them 
And these gurus I'm talking about, these are the people that walked with Jesus. These are the people that just came out of being completely devastated. And their emotions changed overnight. And I don't even care if you're bipolar. You can't change that fast. You can't. And not only did they, but they stayed there. They stayed on this, such a high level of commitment and extreme behavior, willing to just give it all, just betting the whole farm on it. Even to the point where Peter says, just hang me upside down. And know what tradition says? That he was crucified upside down because I don't want to be crucified like my Lord. I don't deserve that. I mean, that's somebody that was betting everything on it, right? And it should just, all of the rest of us that seem to be a little timid about this and just, oh, I want it to be true, but is it true? That should give some, some stability to our faith, some foundation. And we should take those scriptures that I read to you earlier and we should really think about them and just realize that that is the intensity that I should be following Jesus. That is what God has called me to do. He's called me to live different. He's called me to go against the stream, the flow of, of this world and, and, and what people... He's not called me to just dip my toe in it and just check out the water. He's called me to bail in all together. He has called me to this. And so as we started this conversation, I just want to go back there for just as we approach the, the table. Sean's going to come and he's going to lead us in our communion time. But before he does, I just want to go back to the beginning of our conversation. That is that God has provided plenty of evidence. He's just given us everything. If it was like a stock, he has made this as clear as you possibly can. Everything is going up, up, up. And you can bet the farm on this. He's given us evidence everywhere we go, everywhere we look. It's not just... It's not just in nature when you go out there, but you'll see him out there. It's not just in the evidence of how we can even trust that this is the Word of God, and that's pretty amazing if you study that. It's not just in, you know, the moral law and why we all believe that killing somebody is wrong or other things like that. I mean, he's given us evidence everywhere, but let me tell you something. He's given us evidence in in who Jesus was, that he was the one through prophecy. He's given us evidence to believe that he did resurrect from the dead. And so let's just go back to where we began in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let 
the ultimate reality of what I'm trying to say is that you can either follow Jesus as the resurrected Christ that he is, or you can continue to be deceived by the world and by Satan and by your own flesh and your fleshly desires. But we all know, right? We all know God exists. And we can be thankful that he has given us so much evidence. We don't live on a blind faith, people. We live on a faith that is completely rock solid, more so than anything else that has ever happened in history. And it really demands a real radical change in behavior. When I weigh it, and just just as some stock guru would every year look at his portfolio and he would look into if he was smart and had a lot invested, he would, he would look at that company again and say, has anything changed? Is there anything that's changed about this company now that makes it less valuable than it did when I first invested? And if he saw that nothing has changed, then his money stays there. He doesn't pull out anything. And every time I look at the evidences and every time I read through and think about it in this term, I realize that he is still worth betting the farm. I am right where I am because there's no other place that I would rather be than to be all in. And I just, there's, there's just this, these moments in our time that we, we realize that and God is calling us to change and to be more radical in our behavior and our thinking. And maybe today is one of those for you. And we're going to go into this time of communion and just for us just to process why we are doing this right here and what it calls from us. Just as he says, I went to the cross and I died for you. And as he says then back to you, Therefore, I want you to deny self and go to your own cross and die for me each day. That's really what this is about, isn't it? Remembering his blood and then remembering the blood that ought to come from us. We're going to partake of communion now. And then we'll come back right after that and give you an opportunity to respond in any other way that God wants you to. But Sean, would you come? Faith crisis or faith explosion? What do you want? I think a lot of people have experienced a crisis of faith, but they never experienced a faith explosion. Maybe we've had those Old Testament moments, and and I'm always drawn to Job. He was going through a faith crisis. Everything he had was taken away from him, over and over again, and his life became a mess. He should have had a faith crisis, and I think maybe he was. He never let it get him down. His friends, they, they were going through a faith crisis. They said, you know what, this God that you serve, that I serve, boy, he doesn't, he's got something against you. You need to curse him and die. And Job never says, I'll do that. He continues to hang on to 
that kernel of faith all throughout the whole story. Maybe it's a uh, New Testament faith story. Think about, Mike alluded to uh, Stephen in his message this morning. And Stephen, a young guy. He's, he's full of faith. He's, that's why he's chosen. They, they said that we need some helpers to serve. And they said, well, we know these seven guys. Let's put them in charge of, of some of these things that the disciples were trying to do and have them help us. Stephen said, Stephen was one of those seven, and they put him in charge of handing out bread. That's kind of a menial task. But Stephen does it really, really well, but because Stephen has this kernel of faith that starts to expand while he's handing out bread. And he becomes a witness and a he goes out and tells people about Christ. And he, every, as he's handing out every loaf of bread, he's talking about the bread of salvation and the bread of faith. And all of these things are happening to him. And then one day, he's arrested. Is he going to have a crisis of faith or a faith explosion? Where are you? Are you at the bottom of the thing? Are you having a faith crisis, or are you about ready to have a faith explosion? I think you can have either one. I think it's our choice. Stephen, gotta love this man. I, he's one of the people that I am so excited to meet when I go to heaven because I want to shake his hand and say thank you for showing how we can do this when everything looks so bleak. As he is about to be stoned, Stephen becomes one of the first apologists of the, first, of the faith. He lays out faith and understanding of the Bible and Christianity from the beginning all the way up into the point where he closes his eyes and he goes to sleep. Now, what's really cool about that is I know It doesn't say it in the Bible, but I know that when he opened his eyes, Christ reached down and said, welcome. It's time to get up now. Wouldn't that be so cool? To be able to say, how was that? What was that like? What was that faith explosion that you experienced in that moment? When we come to the table, when we come to this table, this table is not the end. It's not the end of our faith. It's not the end of Christ's story. It's not the beginning of something different. This is, this is the sustaining part of our faith. This is where we come every Sunday and reaffirm with Christ who we are. C.S. Lewis says it this way, your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours just because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you're looking for him. When we come to this table, we're not looking for it, we're looking for him to pull us on through and build up so that we can have that faith explosion. When Stephen closed his eyes and went to sleep, the man standing to the side, holding the cloaks 
giving permission for Stephen to be stoned was Saul. It's the first time we see Saul in the Bible. He's standing there giving his approval of that death. As, as we go on through the New Testament, and Paul is now responsible for writing that down because of his meeting up with Christ, and he has his faith explosion after he meets up with the real Christ, the risen Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's writing to this church that's struggling. They're having a faith crisis. They've got all kinds of things going wrong in that church. But he tells them, there's something you need to remember to do, and that's have communion. And he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We know he's coming back, and that will be our faith explosion when he returns. There's nothing that can hold us down. There's nothing that can keep us from that faith explosion if every Sunday we come to this table in remembrance of Christ who strengthens us through his death, burial, and resurrection. I'm going to pray here in a moment and then ask you to come and if you would like to, if you're a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to take communion with us here at Westside. Um, as you come up, for those of you who haven't been here since for a while or never been here, the, you have two cups there, one on top of the other. The bottom cup has the bread in it, and the top cup has um, the juice. And then there are trash cans when you're finished. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you. You know, so many have gone on before us. There are many who will go yet before you call us. Lord, we pray that our faith, even when it's in crisis, we will never forget you. That we will have the strength and courage of your servant Job that we'll have the wherewithal of your servant, Stephen, to at the midst of the worst thing that could be happening to us, that the only thing we can think of is to glorify your name. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to be our death, burial, and resurrection so that once again we could be united with you and you could be united with us because that was the only way it was going to happen. Lord, we know that Jesus called you Abba. Abba, we thank you. We love you. And we thank you that Jesus served you in obedience, even obedience to death on a cross. And it's his 
in his precious and holy name we pray. Amen.